0: All right, so we have been talking about the church, and I want to give you a little recap. Some have been out sick, and that's fine. So we're going to recap, and don't try to write all this down. Instead, go onto the website... Uh, FBCelgin.org, you can go listen to those old sermons. All the sermon notes are, are attached there in the notes section. You click on that, it'll bring up a PDF. You'll have all the notes. It's just easier to follow along that way. But I want to I bring you up to speed this morning. We, we've, been, we've been talking about the church, and this is what we kind of said. We said the New Testament really paints six pictures for what the church is. And the New Testament says that the church is, is, is the building or the spiritual building of God, it says that it's the family of God, it says that it's the, it's the body of Christ, it says that it, it's the flock. Uh, says that it's the bride and it's an army. And and those are really the six pictures of the church. And so we kind of came out of that. And a few weeks ago, we we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, and we studied that together, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. And we were talking about the church being the building of God. And this is what the Word of God says about that, Ephesians 2, 19, 22. It says, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with God's people, and you're members of God's household, get this, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone and it says in him the whole building is joined together these are all building analogies is joined together to become uh and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord and in him you too are being built together and so we we talked about uh, this uh, becoming a dwelling which God lives by His Spirit, and so we we began to to talk about that, and and what we take from that is if if you if you study this scripture and and it says that we we are we're building we're a spiritual building that God is in the process of doing when you when you read the scripture carefully it, it tells you how that building is laid out. Or how the building should be laid out. How about that? It says the foundation has got to be the word of God. It's, it's the, it, the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. That's the word of God, right? So, so the word of God is the foundation. And then it says that, that Jesus, you notice, is the one that's building this thing. Jesus is the architect. Jesus is the builder. And, and we go back to Colossians 1. Colossians 1 says that, that Christ, everything was made through him and by him and for him... And that he is holding all things together, right? And so we think this is Jesus' role. He, he is the builder. He's the one building it. Which really kind of leaves the people of God, Ephesians 2. Remember, you, you were dead in your transgressions, but you know, now you've been saved. You've been brought near. You've been raised up. Okay? And, and, and so you think about, so what are we, the people of God? Now that we're, we're citizens of God, God's kingdom and members of his household, what, what are we? Well, we're the materials. We're the materials. We're just the materials, and so we we together we went and looked at at Second at Peter and this is or First Peter First uh, Peter two and this is what First Peter two uh, was teaching us. It says, as you come to Him, that's Jesus, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to Him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, to a spiritual house. And so we began to talk about that. You know, we said, listen, we are the materials, and you could think of that as bricks, but I, I kind of prefer stones. Because it really takes a craftsman to build with stones, doesn't it? And and, and there's some cool things about... Bricks all look exactly the same. I'm a brick, right? It's all the same shape. But we know as we study Scripture, we're not that. We're a body made up of many parts. We're all individual. We're we're all made in God's image, so we have commonality. But God is... blessed us with certain gifts and abilities and talents and to different measures even. So we're all unique. And so so we talked about these stones. And these are some of the things when you talk about this building project, uh, some things you need to notice. Those materials are all unique. You're unique. God made you the way that he made you on purpose for a reason to be used for his glory like no one else, no one else could be. You're made on purpose for a reason. God has a plan for you. We talked about that. that, that, that we're all placed by God where we need to be. God puts you where you are on purpose, right? That, that, that's the basic thing of that. And, and why does he do that? Because he's the builder, right? You're just the material. He picks you up, you're a stone. He says, you're going to be right there. That's where you're going to be in, in this spiritual building that I'm building. And so it's he who calls some to be apostles and some to be priests. Right? And you walk through that and, and, and some to be teachers and some to be. And you, you walk through that, Ephesians 4. And we know that he's the one doing. It says that we're all linked together. That's the other thing you see about the stones, right? We're all linked together. We're, we're, we're part of a bigger spiritual building that God is building, which means that we're important. And it's important that you be a part of the building. It's important that I'm a part of the building. And it's important that you're a part of the building, right? We, we go around. We're, we're all linked together. And so it's a big deal. And, uh, it, it also means that we're not there to draw attention to ourselves. We're living stones, not living boulders. Anytime you turn on a television set or a radio station and you, you hear a pastor talking about himself and his ministry and building himself or his ministry up, and, you know, I mean I, those things are red flags to me. I want to tear in that channel. We're probably the least of these, right? You guys are the ones that are out doing all the ministry. That's really important. We're just here to, to build you up and to equip you and to do those things. And so we're not meant to draw attention to ourselves. And finally, those stones, are, they're, they're part of a bigger project part of a bigger project it's not just about you it's about this great project of god and so we began and we, we looked at those things we, we talked about those things and and what all that means so now guys that was all the church now now when i say the i mean the big big all capitals that's the church that's the the overall church now now for the next few weeks i want to talk about our church and you notice there's no caps there and, and here's why there's no ownership When I say our church, I'm not talking about this church that we own, that we're in charge of, because the only one in charge of this church is Jesus. He's our Lord and Savior. He's the head of the church. So there's no ownership. When we use "our," it's all lowercase because we're just talking about the church that by the grace of God we all get to belong to. Another way you might say that is this church. Or First Baptist Elgin, right? So when we say our church... That's what we're talking about. We're we're, we're talking about um, what what is our role here in this place that we all belong in. And so continuing our question and answers, understanding that now we're going to talk about this church and how we function here in in accordance with how God says we should function. So I want to talk to you about this building project of God. So we've talked about what it's supposed to look like. Now let's talk about how, how we play our role. And so here's our question this morning, okay? How can we... Be useful building materials for God. If we're just called to be the stones, and we are, how can we make sure that we're useful? How can we make sure that we're useful for God? And, and, and luckily, we, we have an answer around here, and this is our church's response unto you. If someone would say, Pastor, how, how do I know that I, I, I can be ready for God to use me, that I can be useful to His church and to His kingdom? I would tell you, Philippians uh, chapter 2. So, if you have a Bible, you're going, to, you're going to want it. You're also, if you've got a bulletin, it's got some sermon notes you're going to want to follow along. We've are we got a lot of a, a ground to cover this morning. But Philippians 2 is our answer here as to how you can be effective... In, in, in this great church that God is, is, is building uh, in, in our local church. And so uh, our answer to that is Philippians 2. And what we're going to find is you're going to find seven characteristics. Seven characteristics. And so let me read to you Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. We're going to read through 16. Paul writes, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit... If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe As you hold out the word of life. Alright. So remember last week we said Paul's aim in his ministry. Was to present every man complete in Christ. His aim was discipleship. It was maturity. He wanted every man, woman, and child that knew Jesus to, to be to be full in Christ so that the church could be everything that she was called to be, right? Because the church is made up of many members. All the members have to attain fullness in Christ, so that the church can accomplish all the purposes that it has in the three ministries that, that, that it has, right? Ministering to God and to its members and to the world through word and deed. And so, so Paul Paul's aim was 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 that we would be mature. And and, and so what Paul's saying now guys, is how that happens. He's writing the, the, the church in Philippi. He said, this is how that happens. This is how you become useful to God. These are the things that you need to do. And, and around here, we're going to call them the seven commitments. Okay, we're going to say these are the seven commitments. These are our expectations of you as members. These are the things you should expect from me and from Alan. These are our seven commitments uh, to the cause or to the kingdom of Christ. And, and, and when you're this, man, you're useful Uh, to God, and and this is how we become the right materials, okay? Seven things I'll share with you. Here's here's the first. The first, according to Paul, we all have to be like-minded. We have to be like-minded. He he, he says there, uh, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, comfort from His love, fellowship with the spirit of tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete... He said, if, if you love God and, and, and you care for me at all, then make, make my joy, make my mission complete by being like-minded. That, that phrase in Greek, it's freneo Christou. It, it means to have the mind of Christ. And, and it really has, has to do on two levels. First and foremost, that, that individually, we have to share the mind of Jesus. Individually, that's my responsibility, right? If I want to be used of God, I have to have the mind of God. So I've got to have the mind of Jesus. And you go, well, pastor, that's kind of a big task. Well, I don't want to oversimplify it, but when you study the life and the ministry of Jesus, what you find is that Jesus was really focused on two things. Loving His Father, right? He loved loved His Father with everything that He had. He lived to obey His Father. This is Jesus. Study the Scriptures, right? So, So He loved God with all of His heart, and then you study His life and His ministry. And who else did He love? He loved people. He gave himself up for for people. He always had compassion on the crowds. There was always room for for an extra need to be met. Jesus loved people. And then you think about his his ministry. What was was his mission? To seek and save those that are lost. He, He said, listen, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but it's the sick. So Jesus loved God and he loved people. And he gave himself to the task. He gave himself to the task of meeting needs with love, of sharing the truth about God's kingdom, of seeking and saving the lost. And so you say, listen, I've got to have the mind of Christ. What does that mean? It means that you've got to love God, you've got to love people, and you've got to be about ministry. That's what it means. You've got to love God, you've got to love people, and you've, you've got to be about the mission at hand, which is seeking and saving those that are lost. We've got to be about the sick people. That's who we have to be about. And so we start there and we say, listen, he begins and said, you've got to be like-minded. Well, first and foremost, he's talking about being like-minded with Jesus, but secondly, he means that we have to be like-minded. See, see, individually, I've got to have the mind of Christ. Collectively, we've got to share the same mind. And Paul, Paul Paul says, "Listen, you've got to be tied together." And he he begins. Maybe you read right over. He gives you four ways that every Christian is tied together. Let's look at them real quick. He says, "Listen, number one, you're tied together through your encouragement in Christ." He, he begins, "If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, that's our, that's our first tie that, that that binds." Right, we're not in this alone. We're not in this alone. You're not, I, you know, sometimes you feel like you are, don't you? Feel like nobody else understands how poor of a Christian I am. Nobody else knows what I'm struggling with. Nobody knows that, 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 that I'm struggling with my temper or that, that I'm struggling with this or whatever. And you say, well, wait a second. No, friend, we do know you're not in this alone. We all have the same story, just with different details. Did you know it? We, we were lost, but now we're found. We were dead, but now we're alive. We were blind, but now we see. That's my story and it's your story too. Just the details are different. Just the details are different. Friends, we have that in common. That's a tie that binds us together. He says, not just encouragement in Christ, but he says, if you have any comfort from his love. Again, this comfort. What does that mean? It means that we're not here alone. Right? Right? That we're here for one another. It's comfort. Say, listen, brother. I know you stumbled and I know you're struggling. But God's not finished with you yet. He's not finished with me yet. God's got a plan for you, right? It's comfort. He says, if any fellowship in the Spirit. What is fellowship? It's talking about doing life together. The joys and the sorrows, everything in life together. He says that ties you together. And finally, he says any compassion. He's talking about deep love for one another. And and so Paul begins, he says, listen, if you want to be used of God, you've got to begin here. You've got to have the mind of Christ. You've got to be like-minded. All of you. All of you. Secondly, he says, listen, you want to be used of God. You want to be the right materials for this church. You've got to possess the same love. You've got to possess the same love. And I wish I could tell you that this was uh, phileo love in this passage in the Greek. The word phileo talks about the love of the heart, right? It, it, it talks about that emotional love, the ooey-gooey stuff. You remember that? Okay, I mean, you've been married at least 10, 15 years, right? You've been married for a little bit, and you're like, you remember when you first started dating the ooey, the butterflies, and the stomach, and ooh, all the ooey-gooey stuff? Man, that stuff's emotional, That comes and goes, right? All of a sudden, the next day, there's a fight. Oh, she hates me. She loves me. She hates me. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you start thinking, well, maybe I should be with this person the rest of my life. And somebody says, oh, hey, by the way, that's a different kind of love. See, marriage isn't about emotional, heartfelt stuff. That's part of it. But marriage is about commitment. And commitment is what's at the heart of agape love. And that's the love it says you've got to have. It says you've got to possess the same love as who? As God. And God's love is agape love. It's a commitment of the will. It's a determination to love somebody no matter what. When you get married and you stand up before all the witnesses and before God and you say, until death does me, you know, does me in or asunder, I'm going to love this person by golly. And you know when you say that, we're going to have some rough days and there are going to be some times that they hate me and there are going to be some times that I hate them and we're going to yell about laundry and fight about dishes and how to raise kids and what to eat and and, and then we can never get anybody in the car at the right time, right? That's going to happen. And and But you know what? No matter what, no matter how often you make me late to where I want to be on time, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll always be with you, right? It's just, And that's the kind of commitment. And so you don't have to turn there, but this is 1 Corinthians 13 defined, guys. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through 8. You know the passage says, love is, is patient. This kind of love is, is kind. This kind of love does not envy. It, it, it doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's, it's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. This kind of love keeps no record of wrongs. It, it doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices in truth. This kind of love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres this kind of love never fails and God's word says listen if you want to be used of God if you want to be the right materials for God to use you in the church you've got to have that kind of love for people and hear me now that's going to be tough for some of you because what that means is if you want to be the right materials for God to use you in the church it means that you've got to let go of some of the old hurts that you have right? right? Why do you have to let go of the old hurts that you have? Because love keeps no record of wrongs. So so you're going to have to, some of you are going to have to get rid of an old disposition that you have. You know what a disposition is, right? It's a bent. Something happened somewhere, and you were going down the straight and narrow, and you got bent. And your disposition changed. And now you're angry, and you're mad. And you know what? Love's not rude, so I'm sorry. Stop drinking the vinegar. Alright? You can't be sour-faced. You can't be mean to people. That's God's not going to use you in His church. If if you have that, that, that old disposition, you've got to let go of that. For some of you, it, it means that, that you've got to let go of that old ego because love's not proud. Some have to let go of old interests because love's not self-seeking. You see, the world needs a church that's full of people that understand redeeming love. That are committed to broken people. And if you walk through the doors of a church and you see a group of people that understand their brokenness and they're committed to you in the midst of your brokenness, then it changes everything. That's the church that the world needs. I fear all too often that's not the church that the world is receiving. Number three. We've got to be joined in life and and deeply connected. We've got to be joined in life and deeply connected. I'm going to try to get you out on time. I really will. Uh, It says, By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. Now, I, I... if you read it in English, and you probably did because I speak English, uh, then then you think, man, that's pretty straightforward. It, it says, listen, you just be one in spirit. We all got the Holy Spirit. If we're Christians, good, we got that one accomplished. The problem is is that's it was written in the Greek, and that's not what it means. So it begins, you, you see, in verse 1, it says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from His love, any fellowship with the Spirit. Now, that's one word. Okay? That, that, that's the Spirit of God. That's Holy Spirit. That's pneuma. Uh, and, and, and so it, it's talking about the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. But then it says, um, being one in spirit and in purpose. And that second time it says spirit with a lowercase. It's a completely different word. It, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a completely different word. And it's a word that only appears in this passage in all of the New Testament. is the only place you find. It. And the word is sumsukos. And this is what it means. Sum is same and sukos is Soul. It literally says, you've got to possess the same soul. All right? You say, well, pastor, what does that mean? What does soul mean? Well, we can can look to the Bible and we can study that Jesus actually used that word quite a bit. You know, Jesus used the word soul in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying, remember? He he was praying there in the Garden and and his soul was overwhelmed to the point of death. He was completely overwhelmed. He used it in the Great Invitation. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and, and you'll find rest For my burden is easy and my yoke is light and you will find rest for your soul. He said it when he was talking about his role as the good shepherd. He said, listen, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his soul or life there, as you might translate. It's the word soul for his sheep. He says it again when he says that he came to serve and to give his soul as a ransom for many. And, and when we put all that together, we, we begin to see that, that this same soul means that we're joined in all of the things that overwhelm us. That, that we're, we're joined in, in in the things that weigh us down and, and to the answer to the things that weigh us down. We're joined in that. that we're, we're joined in the task Before us, and we're joined in the fact that we have a good shepherd that loves us and is looking out for us and always has our best in mind. That we're we're joined in our service to the kingdom. And that's what the text is talking about. It says, listen, you've got to have the same soul. Let me explain it like this. Uh, How many of you have a computer? Everybody. If you have a a smartphone, you have a computer, by the way. They just stuck it in a phone and told you. If you have an Xbox, you have a computer, uh, right? So so typically when we have computer problems and and we say, hey, my computer crashed on me, we're not talking about the hard drive, we're not talking about the screen, okay? We say, "I, I had a computer problem, my computer crashed, we're talking about the operating system. We're talking about the system that holds it all together. Say, friend, this is what to be joined in soul means. That we have the same operating system. It means that we're not trying to translate Mac into Windows 8 back into DOS. Right? We are all operating on the same system. We've got the same heartbeat going through all of us. The same mission. The same vision. The same purpose. See, when we're all in the same operating system, then we can be used of God to be built into the kind of church that God intends for us to be. And that's what we expect, okay? That's our our, our third commitment. Number four, we've got to put others first and be without partisanship. That that capital P is on purpose, by the way. It's a big deal. We've got to put others first and be without partisanship. Look at uh, verse 3. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. That that, that phrase, selfish ambition, is a Greek word that was used in politics. It was used in politics. It was when someone sought selfish gain, okay, uh, seeking the pursuit of a political office by unfair means. That's what it is. Paul says, you know what? There's no room for any of that in in the church. There's none. Paul says, listen, there's there's no place for for politics. Church isn't a place for politics. It's not a place for power struggles. It's not a place for positioning. Why? Because we're the stones, right? What kind of campaign can you run if you're a stone, right? Hey, all the perfectly round ones over here, and we'll rule over all the ones that are squarish. Right? All of you that are in the brown kind of family, we'll have one group and we'll stick all those white stones over there, and then the speckled ones, they've got a place out back. And you laugh and we think it's silly, but churches are plagued by people that want to play politics friends. There is one head. Church is a theocracy. That means that God rules, it's not a democracy. It's a theocracy. It's God's word over all. That's how it goes. That's the way that it works. And yet, I see so many churches that are plagued by politics that people want position. They want power. Maybe because they don't have it at home. So they bring it into the walls of this place. And again, if you're an outsider and you step into that and you see the ugly, nasty environment that it creates, you are done. Paul says the church can't be that. Not a healthy church. Church has to be completely without partisanship. And and the reason why, he says, is because the church is all about putting others first. When you're thinking about putting others first, here's a good way to think about it, okay? We should always put others' needs above our wants. People always wonder, what does that mean to put others first? Always put other people's needs above your wants, okay? we start having conversations, but I want this and I want that. I need to always put other people's needs above Above my wants. That, that's what it's about, okay? So, so we've got to put others first, and we've got to be without partisanship. Number five. Fifth commitment. We must serve willingly. Look at verse 7. It's talking about Jesus. It said, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of, of a servant. Now, now, that word servant, again, in the Greek, it literally is talking about a willing slave. It's talking about a bond servant. And to understand that, you've got to understand uh, the, the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, it talked about the, the Jews uh, who had slaves. They had to set slaves free every seven years. And when they set them free, they actually had to provide them with a good amount of money and, and a head start in life. And here's why. Because God said, remember, you were once a slave. You were a slave and I set you free, therefore you will set yours free and you'll do it because you were there and you know what it's like. And I set you free and you're going to set them free. There's probably a great sermon there about forgiveness somewhere, right? So God says that. Now, this is what God says. So He gives them instructions on the slave, ready? Deuteronomy 15, 16. He says, but if your servant says to you, you've set them free, you've given them money, you said you go ahead. But if they say to you, I don't want to leave you. Because because they love you and your family and they're well off with you, then this is what you do. You take an awl and you push it through their earlobe into the door and he'll become your servant for life. Now, they used the door because it was hard. It wasn't like they were nailing somebody to the door and they just hung out there the rest of their life, okay? I don't know if you're a visual person. I get things like that stuck in my head and I totally lose the passage. All right. So just push it through. They pierce their ear. Uh, and so so here's the imagery. I just want you to see this, okay? So this is the imagery. This is literally a slave going to their master and going up to their master and saying, but master, I know that you've set me free, but listen, you're better than I am. Your, your way is better than, than my way. Your will is better than my way. Your plans are better than my plans. Not my will, but your will be done, master. That's what I want in life because I know that your will is best. You see it, it's gorgeous. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, friends. Not my will, but your will be done. And the Bible says that that's got to be our attitude if we want to be used of God. We've got to be willingly coming to God saying, God, I know that you're better. I know that your ways are better. and I know that your will is better. And I know that your plan is better. Because I have proved it out time and time again in my own life. I know that you're better. Not my will, but your will be done. We've got to be servants for God to use us in the way that He wants to use us. Okay, number. What are we on? Six? Six. Commitment six. <clears throat> Have notes just in case, you know? <clears throat> six. who doggies. Gotta be without complaint. Let's look at verse 14 and 15 together. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. One of the greatest principles that I I try to share with people when I I talk about um, the issue of complaining is this. Guys, complaint halts progress. Complaint always halts progress. It just does. And and a great example of that, if you want to turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 15. Um, exodus chapter 15, the Israelites have, have literally just been delivered, right? Um, you, you think about the, their exodus from Egypt. And, and so they, they've just crossed the Red Sea. I, I mean, they're new into this thing. They've been at it for three days. God is taking them to a really cool place. We're going to read it together in a second. But but something happens. I want to share what happens with you here. Exodus 15, uh, 22 through 27, it says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. And for three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. And when they came to Mata, they, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's, that's why the place is called Mata. And, and so the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. And he said, if you listen carefully to what the voice of of the Lord your God, and, and you do what's right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam where they, uh, there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, uh, and they camped there near the water. So follow me here. God has just delivered them from slavery, and He's taking them to an oasis. He's taking them to Edom, where there are 12 springs of living water, and there are 70 palm trees. Okay. But to get from the Red Sea to Elam, they've got about three days' walk. Now, they're in the desert, and they're walking, and they're thirsty, and they come to water finally, water! And it's bitter. And so they grumble against the man of God, against Moses. And it's really interesting, if you study the word grumble in the Hebrew, it means spend the night or camp out. It means to pitch a tent overnight. They are dying without water and God is taking them to living water where there's shade of 70 palm trees. And instead of just listening and trusting and following God, they choose to camp out over their bitterness. Does that resonate? See, I look at the church as a whole today and I realize... Especially the American Church, friends. America's blowing up population wise. Have you looked around? I like guess happening. Elgin's gonna about to blow up. I mean, we're having some babies. You know, that's what's happening. Did you see what happened earlier with Children's Church? I mean, the Lord. We're just doing what the Lord said. He said, "Be fruitful and multiply." So, I mean, we just take that literally, right? And so, so I mean, just coming, and we're running out of houses, and we're running out of land, and all this stuff. So, population is increasing. You would think that churches. You would think that churches want to meet the spiritual need of the population increase in America, but I tell you, more churches are shutting their doors today than they are expanding. And you want to know why? Because many of them are camped out in their bitterness. Though God wants to take them to a great place, they are camped out in their grumbling and in their complaining. I just want you to know, friends... That's always going to halt progress. I can't tell you how many sad stories I've heard of churches that have ended up shutting their doors and, and it, because of a 20-year argument, and the 20-year argument started over the color of the carpet. Right? Are you kidding me? We're closing down churches because we can't agree upon what our feet walk upon. Because we can't agree about pews or chairs, sit on the floor. In Jesus' name, complaint halts progress. The sixth thing we've got to be committed to here around here is that we're going to be without complaint. Now, guys, I'm not talking about construction. We have construction. People come see me, and and and, and sometimes I have to kind of figure out discern, is this a complaint or is this a constructive... You know, we, we are, we're an old facility. We've got old buildings. We need to upgrade some There's Sometimes there's just genuine concern. I really think that we should have some new toilets. Because when, you know, I had one lady that told me, Pastor, I, I know this is weird, but when you sit on a toilet in a lady's room, it spins. We should know that, right? That's, that's not a complaint. That's a report, you know? I mean, Pastor, I went to church, and I let me tell you about the trip I had, you know? I mean, that's a whole... That's, that's important. I need to know that. If that sucker's not bolted to the ground, we need to do something, right? Have you come to me and say, well, I don't like the round toilets because I think they should all be elongated. Now, we're, now we're, we're camping out over something that doesn't mean to. And so we have to discern that. But I want you to know, we're going to hold you to it here. We're going to be without complaint because we believe that it's the people that are without complaint that God uses. Okay? Here's the last one. We're done. We've got to hold out the word of life. It says do nothing without complaining or uh, do nothing with complaining or arguing uh, so that we we might be or it actually says do everything without complaining or arguing so that we might be um, pure and blameless uh, before God as we hold out the word of life shining as stars in the universe is is, is what it's saying there in Philippians 2 and and uh, Guys, that's such a big deal, and it's just one word, and I'll be quiet, okay? Uh, Hold out the word of life, that phrase. The word hold, it means to have, to present, and to apply. To have... To present and to apply. And so I want to break that down for you. That means individually, we all have to have Jesus. That's pretty important. If you want to be used by God, you want to be used as part of God's big spiritual building program that brings glory to Himself, you gotta have Jesus. That's pretty core, cool, okay? So you have to have Jesus. Second thing, you've got to apply the words of Jesus. It's not enough to say, Well, I'm a Christian, but I don't read my Bible. I'm a Christian, but I don't study my Bible. No, friends. As a Christian, you've got to be applying it. And here's the illustration I use in the early service. Sorry, it's a little graphic. So just imagine you're out somewhere and you cut your leg, you know, real bad, and your blood's gushing, and kind of. Said, what are you gonna do? You are going to apply a tourniquet. You're going to apply that sucker, or you will die. Right, You're going to wrap that up tight. You need it to survive. Friends, that's what you need with Jesus. You have to apply Him. You have to apply His Word. Because here's the truth about your sin nature. It is so great. You are so depraved that even after you've accepted Christ, that sin nature will want to sprout back up in you and take control of you again. You must apply that tourniquet. You've got to apply the Word of God in your life on a regular basis. That's part of your commitment. And here's the last one. See, the last part is it's not just about you. It's not just about you having Jesus. And it's not just you about applying Jesus in your own life. You've got to hold him out for others. You've got to hold him out for others. You've got to say, listen, my fellow sinner, I'm in the same boat, but I have Jesus on board. And it's changed the whole story. You've got to hold out the word of life. That's got to be your commitment. And God will use you if you do. Say, Pastor, I don't know about all this evangelism. That's fine. I don't know about all this evangelism stuff either. But, but I do know this. I know that I have an answer that others don't. Imagine that you're sitting in the movie theater, you and your family, and you've got your popcorn and your drink, and the lights go out, and suddenly you see some embers in the back of the theater, and there's a fire Would you get up with your family and your children and just quietly walk out and let everybody else burn up in flames? You wouldn't do that. Yet we have the answer. And we walk around in life silently, refusing to share it. We have to hold out the word of life. We've got to tell people about Jesus. And in a few weeks, we'll talk to you. You say, but pastor, I'm not that vocal person. I don't have a lot of scripture. I'm going to tell you how just living your life, you can do evangelism. We'll talk about that in a few weeks and how that works with with this church and how we've set ourselves up to go and make disciples. And we'll get there in a few weeks, okay? There's the seven commitments, all right? Let me tell you what to do with them, and I'm done. Number one, study and pray. Study and pray. This is what we ask of members here. Say, but I've been a member since... Who knows when? I helped found the church. That's awesome. This is what we're going to ask of you. Okay? This is what we're going to ask of you. Why? Because it's biblical. This is is what church members look like. This is what the people of God look like. So that God can make the church who he wants it to be. So we're going to ask you to think and pray over the seven commitments. Uh, Second thing we're going to ask you to do is, is to buy in. You know, after you think and pray about them, you need to buy in. Lots of people go to church. Very few give themselves to the church. When the early church that all the pastors today look at and go, Oh, I want to be like the early church. You want to know why the early church worked? It wasn't just because of great preaching and it wasn't just because of miraculous signs. The early work, the early church worked because all the people bought in. It says they devoted themselves to the church. And, and, and we live in a culture that teaches you, no, know, don't devote yourself to church. Just come to church and consume it. You weren't meant to be a consumer. You were called to be a contributor, friend. Don't just go to church. Be the church. It's a big deal, okay? So we, we, you've got to buy in. And, and, and here's the last part. As you do, you got to let go. And you got to let God build you as he sees fit. And that's hard because we get things in our mind about who we're going to be and how we're going to operate and what we're going to do. One of the most humbling things in my life uh, for me was becoming a pastor. And, and I want to tell you, it, it, it's been nothing like what I thought it was going to be. Right? I, I had this thing worked out in my mind, and there's coffee and tennis shoes and, and blue jeans. And, and, you know, and and, 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 uh, and it was a new church plant, and we were having to meet. And, you know, I mean, all of a sudden, I, I thought, well, God, I think that's what you're calling. And God said, no, that's not what I have for you. This is what I have for you. And, man, what God has done here over the last three and a half years, guys, it's hard to document. It's been a crazy ride. The reason why that's, that's going to happen or continue to happen is all going to be about us buying in and letting go and letting God build as He sees fit. And that, that includes you. He said, but I'm not meant to be a Sunday school teacher. Well, if God says you are, you are. Right? Because He always equips those that He calls. <laughs> And you say, well, I'm not meant to run this ministry. Well, if God says you are, you are. And God's going to show you. And we're going to help you discover those things. But you've got to buy in. And you've got to let go. And you've got to let God make you into the person that he wants you to be. That's the key to being used of God. Okay?